You're listening to San Francisco, a show about two Americans abroad in Japan. This is going to go down, I think, as one of the, if not the best year of my life. I'm just so... It's all downhill from here. Yeah, Joe. just a slow march into the grave. Uh, <laughs> that should be the title of this episode. A slow the march. slow march that into the good, grave. I like it. One year ago, we were packing up our life in San Francisco and trying to imagine what our experience would be like living in Japan. I interviewed Drew as he was about to get on the plane to leave, and that recording has been sitting on my laptop ever since. Until now, Drew has never listened to that audio. So in this episode, we recorded his reaction after all this time. It was fascinating to hear the difference in our mental states then versus now, and what parts we got right and what we got wrong. But before we listened to the time capsule, we first talked about the changes that we noticed in ourselves over the past year. We do have audio from more than a year ago, recorded on June 29th, 2018, but I don't want to listen to that yet. I don't want previous Drew polluting our mental space. Yeah, he was an idiot. (laughs) I don't know about this new guy, though. Maybe still an idiot. It doesn't have to be new learnings necessarily. <laughs> what? I was just thinking out loud. <laughs> Gee, what's wrong with my face? <laughs> he was just staring at me with the most crazed, like eyes wide open, not blinking while she talked. My God. I have nightmares about it for a week. Do you want me to just answer your question? Yes. Okay. What are some themes from this past year? I was thinking about this a little bit in preparation for the podcast. And I think there are, I mean, I guess there's like three themes that I find kind of interesting. One is just how has Japan itself shaped up versus what we expected it to be one year in. We had one expectation of how Japan was going to be before we came. Now we've been here for a year. How have things been different or not different? So I think that's one big bucket. Another interesting bucket is just the changes that Japan has wrought on us as individuals. Because there's a lot of differing opinions on how you should organize your life, how you should organize society things like that, versus more Western-style culture of the U.S. And so how has that changed us? Uh, And then the third bucket, which I think is interesting, is changes that have been wrought in us that aren't necessarily due to Japan specifically, but just the act of, like, they're not related to, oh, Japanese culture influenced us in X way, but are more just how has being abroad for a year enabled certain just generic changes in our mindset? So why don't we start with things that are not related to our own predictions, just because we are going to listen to that time Mm -hmm. capsule that you recorded, so we can have a little bit more accurate perspective of what we originally thought. Uh, So I think a good one probably is to talk about Japan in broad strokes, because there are a lot of things I believe that we didn't even think about prior to moving here. I think mostly Mm -hmm. it was concern. I went back and listened to episode two. A lot of it was concern with being able to understand the language and do basic functions. Mm -hmm. Um, But beyond that, what do you think really changed having lived here? Like mm -hmm. what is what about the experience of being a resident in Japan has given you more insight than business trips or short term stays would have? I have 
talked to a few people about this because they're they're curious, right? We have a lot of friends who are interested in living abroad, but it's sometimes hard to justify like, oh, is it worth all this extra hassle and extra time to move somewhere and live there versus just extended stays? Mm -hmm. So what is your answer to that? Do you want me to talk more broadly about living abroad or just about Japan in particular? Well, I think both. I mean, wrapped up in that is just what do you think our time as a local has really Mm. gifted to us? Okay. I think the first concern everyone has is it's going to be hard. I won't speak the language. I won't understand the customs, etc. Like, is that worth it? Admittedly, we had some familiarity with Japan, having come here several times. But generally speaking... I think it's safe to say that Japan is one of the most extreme places you could go. Not necessarily the most extreme, but one of the most extreme places you could go from America or a more Western-style country. I can say pretty comfortably that it wasn't that big a deal. This idea that your life is going to be sort of taken over by being in a foreign land is probably not true. It's going to, maybe after a week or two of logistics, sink back down into a pretty comfortable experience. The thing that really changes is the highlights, both good and bad, but the extreme moments, what you're exposed to that's out of the norm is influenced much more by your time abroad than your day-to-day routine. And so the fear of like, oh man, it's just gonna be so much that I can't handle, is not really true because for the most part, you'll still be on pretty solid footing. And then you'll just be able to choose when you want to go out and do some of the more extreme things. Do you think you were you also had this concern? Because you're talking very generally about other people's concerns Mm -hmm. moving abroad. How much of that percentage-wise contributed to your worry about coming to Japan? I don't think very much for myself. I mean, I was sort of the one who initially proposed the crazy idea and was its greatest proponent. So, I mean, to some degree, right, I had to be less worried. But I think generally speaking, I am a pretty both risk-loving and also, I guess you could say, risk-dismissive. For the most part, things we have been programmed to think are really, really bad and sort of devastating to our life aren't actually that bad. They're very recoverable. Worst case scenario in Japan, we screw something up with some immigration form and we get kicked out. Well, okay, we go back to the U.S. after six months instead of a year. It's not that big a deal. Like, you can do everything you want, but you won't have the same level of certainty that you got it right as you would in the U.S. or wherever you're hailing from, uh, partially because you can't understand language, but also because you're not sure that you're catching all the nuance or the context or things like that. And so I think keeping in mind that if I have messed something up, there's only so bad it can really get will help mitigate that concern. And so I, it was not as big a concern for me. I mean, I certainly had it. But I think that is one thing that a lot of people probably fear. My hypothesis on that has been very borne out, right? That it's it's actually not as dangerous a leap as it seems. So the pro tip is to just date someone like Drew, who is very risk-seeking and risk-loving. I think I definitely was more worried about a lot of the logistics and the kind of things that could go wrong. And I mean, a big learning for me was that stuff just vanishes so quickly in your memory. I can go back and listen to our reflections I think, oh, yeah, it did suck, and it was very painful, but I'd say it was less than 2% of our actual experience was impacted by that. Yeah. Maybe less, maybe Mm -hmm. 0%. Right. You know, it just, you kind of get over it really quick. It's paired nicely because the time when it is probably the hardest is also when you're the most bright-eyed and bushy-tailed about, oh, I just moved to X country, or for us, you know, I just moved to Japan. It's not like, oh, so much logistics I have to handle while also not having a good time or something like that. So I think that's a big deal. 
focusing on Japan specifically, what are the, not really the highlights, because I think we've talked about in previous episodes, things that we've been really liking about Japan. So, so we can kind of repeat some of the stuff, but the framing I want here is what is the things we would not have been able to learn not having been locals, not having mm. lived in Japan? Well, one thing that jumps to mind immediately is learning what, and this is going to sound obvious at first, but when I clarify, it will seem like an amazing, brilliant point. Uh, <laughs> learning what it is like to actually live here. And this is something that... Wow, it does sound really I know, it stupid. Sounds, it sounds really banal, right? <laughs> uh, so here, here's what I mean by that. When we have friends come to visit, and they're like, where should we go to eat? I think when we first got here, our recommendations would be very much in line with what people wanted to do. We'd be like, oh, we can go get sushi, we can go get ramen, we can go get you know, all these things. Now I've noticed more and more our recommendations are out of sync with what a tourist would want, but are in sync with what Japanese people actually want. So for people who don't know, Japan is very big on Italian and French food for just some strange reason. Everyone is always so skeptical when I talk about Japanese, Italian and Japanese French food. They're like, are you serious? Yeah. I, I think this is a funny point is a lot of people are like, no, no, no. I want because we'll say, oh, there's a great pizza place by here. We could go and they're like, I'm only in Japan for two weeks. You know, I want like the real Japanese experience. And like, I get what they're saying. They What they mean is like, I want to have all the interesting things that you can only really get in Japan, which totally makes sense. But I think there is an expectation that people are just eating, you know, ramen and sushi and sukiyaki and yakitori and all that stuff all the time. I feel like living here, it let us sort of get past the desire to engage with all the things that are distinctly Japanese and get more into the things that are typically Japanese. We hardly go to quote unquote Japanese restaurants anymore. We just go places that actually look a lot like what you might get in the US, but obviously have a very Japanese twist to them like Japanese Italian food is nothing like uh, US well it's something like US Italian food but it is it is very different as well a good metaphor that I just thought of is I really like watching the show Terrace House uh, which is just about for people who don't know it's like a reality TV show but set in Tokyo and they have three guys and three girls who live in this house and kind of the interesting thing for Western audiences is it, it feels like nothing really happens it's just they're living their lives but watching it through a Japanese lens, Japanese people are much more muted and more reserved in public. And so it's kind of like you do get some of that scandalous drama, whatever. The point is, if you actually look at these people when they go out on dates or they go to restaurants, they're oftentimes not eating what we think of as classically Japanese food. It runs the gamut. They went to a chain that serves Australian burgers do you, uh, what is it called? Moss we've, Burger? Not Moss Burger. It's, um, I don't remember the name, but we, mm. we've been there before. And We've been there? Really? Yeah, it was one of the places they have like pressed sandwiches and coffee. I don't know if you remember. Oh, interesting. Anyway, remember. but if you just look at, I bet if you were to cut all of the food that they eat, I think that is more representative of what we eat because it's not so concerned about, oh, they're always getting sushi or they're always getting ramen mm -hmm. or, you know, these iconic Japanese cuisines. So that's the metaphor. But in terms of my reaction, I almost feel bad. The last couple of friend groups, they've had both the advantage of us having all this knowledge now, but also the disadvantage of now I'm very blasé about food. 
our friends will come and they'll be like, let's just go wherever you like to eat. No, we're not going to do that because you're going to be really disappointed because I just want to eat convenient, tasty, but not necessarily flashy food. Right. Well, I think everyone just kind of expects that our favorite place will be some hole in the wall ramen joint or something like that, which is we do have favorites of those, but it's not where we go to eat all the time. I think actually your terrace house analogy gave me a good summation of this, which Mm -hmm. is that I think one thing you get to experience living in a country that you don't get visiting it is you start to get a sense not just of what that country's culture is, but how its culture sits with and interacts with the rest of the world. Because I think that's something you don't, when you're just visiting a country for the first time, you rarely get a sense to sort of like stand in that country and then turn around and look out to all the other countries. But being here for a year, we know, like for example, we know how Japanese movies relate to US movies and like what comes into a box office and how long the delay is from when like Spider-Man Far From Home came out in the US versus what it comes out mm, here. That's a really good, yeah, that's um, a really good example. So I think we just start getting all of these little snippets of how this country relates back to all the other places we know in the world, which is really interesting and also just adds a lot of nuance to our understanding of the country. Terrace House can seem very tame to a lot of people who are used to watching reality TV. Uh, And then as you get to know sort of Japanese culture a little bit more, you understand when the more exciting outtakes are happening. But something I noticed and I felt very proud of like how fluently I responded to this is there's a woman in the most recent season of Terrace House who... Uh, she's on a date with one of the one of the guys and they're playing golf or something and she's teaching him golf so she knows how to play golf he does not she does a swing I don't know the terminology for golf she does something that you do in golf where she swings the club and she hits the ball and the guy is like oh wow you're like really good at golf and she turns to him and she's like deadpan she goes thanks and then she turns back and I immediately seeing that like that seems like a totally normal interaction right I in seeing that turn to Vivian I was like whoa this girl's so arrogant and then it cuts at that point to the commentators reacting like oh man this girl's so arrogant like in Japan you're supposed to deny compliments you're supposed to be like oh no 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 I mean this is kind of a thing you see in the U.S. but it's much more of a taboo to accept a compliment very confidently and so I think that's another example of after having lived here for so long It's less that I know of some of these things intellectually and more that I sort of respond with them fluidly. Now, if we leave and then come back to Japan in the future, I feel like it's almost like knowing a language versus having learned it in school, right? Like being fluent. I can can jump between the two mindsets much more easily. Like I can make jokes that are funny to a Japanese person but seem very stupid to a US person and vice versa. Uh, So I feel like I've gained some modicum of fluency in the culture which is something i don't think you get just visiting even if you visit a lot because you have to be sort of steeped in it for an extended period of time before it really starts to hammer home yeah another great example of the cultural fluency that i noticed and i was pretty bummed out that people on the internet also noticed i was like oh i thought i was i thought i was cool and figuring it out uh but in the last season of terrace house if you watch the Japanese Netflix version, they actually have a different theme song than the American Netflix version, which is super interesting because the American one, they play a happy song and, and it gives the impression that, oh, this is a very wholesome TV show. And then if you watch the Japanese version, they play like a pop drama, so much drama in the mm-hmm. in the opening credits. And so Japanese viewers who would watch the show think it's just so extra. Like everything yeah. they do is so dramatic, right? See 
And Western audiences, they're like, what are you talking about? They're just talking yeah. about tempura, and then they label the entire episode the tempura incident, right. stuff like that. I think that's actually a really interesting point of how, with essentially no editing, this package of content can be viewed with such dramatically different lenses, right? In Japan, it's viewed as this crazy, extra, like very dramatic, over-the-top, show and then in the u.s it's like a nice little slice of life of just normal people doing normal things yeah it's pretty but it hilarious takes, it took no editing or tricks to sort of change the tone other than maybe changing the song but that your cultural lens can just so dramatically affect how you absorb the content and so i think something that's interesting is now having both lenses you can kind of choose how to interpret things as you see them or you can sort of interpret them in two ways at once which is a very interesting ability that I don't think you get until you've lived somewhere outside the country. Yeah, it makes me think too of, I, I don't think The Bachelor and American reality TV shows are popular here in Japan. I know when we were in Australia, for instance, they have their own version and they also watch the American version of The Bachelor. And it just makes me think a Japanese person watching American reality TV shows, I wonder if they just think it's all fake. I mean, it is fake. Yeah. But we... Even I, when I was really into The Bachelor, I was sort of willing to give it a suspension of disbelief, thinking that these people just were hyping up some of their yeah. emotions, you know, for well, they're TV. Basi- they're basically just drunk all the time, I think. It's, yeah, they're drunk all the time, it's but it's fake, like, but... yeah, but it's like drunk in a way where I feel like the average Japanese person would be like, no one can really act like this, right? right? That's right. crazy. Yeah. Maybe. Do you think, so speaking of cultural fluency changes, do you feel like our taste in food has changed? So I went back and listened to episode two, and in it you talk about hamburgers, missing classic Americana and like burritos and stuff. Do you feel like you still miss that? And even if you do, has the frequency of what you want to eat, has that changed? I think, yes, I was accurate in my prediction that good Mexican food, and when I say good Mexican food, I mean good American invented Mexican food, because I know Mexican food is not actually burritos, but good mission burritos, right? And hamburgers are the two things that you just can't, it's just not quite right here in Japan. Although we found a hamburger place this last weekend. We did finally find a place that they at least get the consistency of the hamburger patty itself. Yeah, it's a very small hamburger though. But I do think that those, I miss them the most, and I appreciate when I have a good one. I don't crave them per se, but I think part of this, the compounding variable is I have discovered our Lord and Savior, Huel. And so I just like, (laughs) in general, I don't really, so side fun fact for everyone listening at home. There was some error with processing, like I updated my Huel order to order more of it because I love it. Somehow my payment got knocked off the account, and so it didn't auto-renew. And so right now, I'm just like, oh, I'm out of Huel. My new shipment must be coming soon, and it wasn't. So now I have to wait like a week, a week and a half until my next shipment of Huel comes, and I have to eat real food again all the time, and it is so annoying. I am just, every time I'm like, ooh, I could use some calories right now, and I'm like, oh, that means I gotta make something 
or like heat up something I made two days ago to try and ameliorate this need to always be making things to eat them. It's especially hard because right now I'm also trying to gain some weight while I go to the gym. And so I'm eating like 4,000 calories a day. And so just preparing 4,000 calories a day for yourself is just a mind-numbing task. It's just funny because all the tragedies in Drew's life recently have all been Huel-related. Like he lost his Huel on the train, or he forgot to make one, or like he didn't get his order at the right time. My tragedies have not been Huel-related. They have been related to absences of Huel. (laughs) Huel itself creates no tragedies in my life. Yeah, 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 but that's what I mean. I mean, you have a great life, and this is the only problem Well, yeah, I am very lucky. I have many privileges in my life. Uh, I'm sure when we get back, I will probably go get a mission burrito. It's a sort of, I'm back, you know, I'm back in the U.S. But I think I crave that less. I think generally speaking, actually as a meta point, I have found myself not really missing anything from the U.S. as much as I had thought. And I think there's some compounding factors to that. One, all of our friends have come to visit us. And so it's felt like, oh, we got to see them all. And like the food here is so good and it's just like really easy to travel and stuff. So there's been lots on our mind. And a year is not so long that it feels like, oh, it's been forever since I've had X or Y. But I think the thing I've noticed is Japan at least was suitably fascinating that I can say pretty comfortably that at least a year is not enough to exhaust the sort of newness and interestingness factor. And so I never had time to sit down and be like, okay, now that this is all sort of routine, I miss some of the routines of the US or anything. And I think there's also a healthy side dose there of, there's a lot in the U.S. that is kind of broken, that is not broken in Japan, and mm. you know, vice versa as well. But given that our friends came to visit us, I feel like like the best part of America came to visit is just a, a lot that I'm really grateful for and value here in Japan, especially Tokyo, like it's such a major city. It was sort of hard to find something that I was like, oh, I miss this thing from the U.S. that they don't have here. You know, it's like sure they don't have great burgers, but that's like such a small thing compared to being able to get anywhere in the city in 20 minutes with public transportation and the fact that trains always run on time and that everyone is polite and everything is super clean. Uh, So I think a lot of things like that, I will be happy to go back. I think there's lots of cool things in San Francisco, but I was surprised by how little I felt any kind of pull back. We ended up chatting for an hour and a half before we stopped to listen to the time capsule. Those topics were really fun and interesting to talk about, but they diverge a lot from the rest of this episode, so I've saved all that discussion for a future bonus episode. After a quick bathroom and coffee break, I opened up the untouched audio from last June and played it for Drew. So given that, you know, we don't really know what this experience is going to be like, what would you tell Drew a year from now? So I think my biggest concern is probably the language. You know, I've never successfully learned another language or like gotten to a point where I could really converse in another language. So right now it's just sort of inconceivable to me what it will be like to have achieved that and so I'm sort of worried I just won't. My biggest fear is that this year will be a very solitary year for you and I. There's still that little like social demon in my mind that's just like, oh, what if we don't meet anybody or what if we can't speak? I'm sorry, what if we can't speak Japanese? So I'll be curious to see how that plays out. There's two things I'm really looking forward to, besides just generally, you know, how much I love Tokyo and I'm looking forward to that. So one is getting to explore, specifically explore smaller, more rural parts of Japan that 
are harder to reach and also don't have as many sort of tourist attractions and so therefore are the kinds of places that you're unlikely to ever go unless you actually live in Japan. Uh, and those will be the kind of things that make our experience different and special compared to someone who just visited Japan a lot. And then I think this past year, you know, once we decided we were going to Japan, has been one of sort of personal discovery, thinking about, you know, what we value, how do we want to balance going to Japan with our careers, with personal lives, our friends. And so I think there's been a lot of introspection and reflection and all that. And I think we've come to some good ideas that I'm sure we'll chat about over the podcast. I'm looking forward to. I think this year in Japan is going to be the year of reaping the benefits of that introspection and reflection, being really confident in what we want to be doing, having a real clear sense of what we're looking for out of this trip, out of life, out of all these things. And so I'm really looking forward to executing on that, on those goals and plans. And I'm also really hopeful that by the end of this year, like right now, you know, we know what we want and I'm researching a lot about storytelling and interactive worlds and things like that. I'm really looking forward to, by the end of this year, kind of coming out the other side, someone who's just capable of doing things in that space, right? Who's done the research and is now making things, telling stories, has written things that people actually read and that impacts them. So I'm excited to see what that will be like, and I'm hoping that we'll be in a state there where it'll be an easy jump off from professional world into doing something on our own. You know, still professional, but self-employed. What are your reactions? First thoughts? I mean, besides the perpetual immediate reaction of cringing when you hear your own voice anywhere, I would say the thing that stands out to me, I think I had a good read on what was the current state of things and what was going to be sort of the major intrigues and challenges of what we faced. And I think this is something we've said over and over again. Being here in Japan, I feel like we had a really good sense of what coming to Japan was going to be like. I think we predicted very accurately. So I was, I've always been very proud of that. I think where I had a pretty good sense of the lay of the land there, I, in some of them, I think I also had a good prediction of where things were going to go, but in a lot of the others, I just, the implications were not what I expected them to be. What do you mean? I think I was right to think that language was going to be really hard and that it was probably going to lead to a more solitary experience. I think we have generally, we've had lots of friends come visit, but in and around those moments, it has mostly just been us here in our apartment sort of going out and seeing Japan, just the two of us, I hinted like, oh, maybe that'll be okay. And I think it was. I don't think I would want this solitary experience in perpetuity, right? Like if we were gonna be here long-term, I think I would really, really have to buckle down and learn Japanese so we could start meeting people for day to day. For a year uh, with frequent visits from friends and whatnot, the solitude was actually quite nice. It gave a lot of space for thinking, a lot of freedom to go explore Japan. I think if we had been hanging out with people in the classical sense all the time, we would have not been able to go on a lot of the fun trips we went on. And actually, to that point exactly, one of the reasons it's been hard for us to meet people is because people will invite us to things. We're like, no, sorry, we're going somewhere. If we had inverted the priority of those two, we would have gone to far fewer places. We would have gone to more traditional, like, oh, let's go to a bar or let's go to a restaurant instead of going weirder, kookier places in Japan. I did make a point in there about how I was most excited to go see smaller, more rural parts of Japan. I think that was just spot on. That was great. I loved all that. The other area, the thing that I was chuckling at the most was the part where I said, oh, I think we've just figured a lot of stuff out. And this next year is just going to be executing on that introspection. 
while I do think it was true that we had figured a lot of stuff out, I think the thing where I failed to realize implications of was that we had figured out the seeds of a lot of things that were really important to us. And being here in Japan, that context shift was basically just like a massive influx of nutrients to the soil. And this year has been less about just executing on a lot of knowledge about certain areas. And it's been more those seeds of what we cared about when we first came here, watching them flourish and sort of take root through our whole personality and really actualize. And I'm sure there's going to be another... I like that. That's such a... That's a little grandiose, but it's a very mm. cool metaphor. Yeah. And I think there's going to be, if I can perhaps torture this metaphor a little bit more, <laughs> in the coming, like in a new context shift, right? Like a new climate change. When we go back to San Francisco. All our flowers are going to die. Well, I don't think they're going to die, but I do think you'll see some of like, which ones hold up to returning to that old context? Mm. Which ones do we decide like, oh, it was actually just being in Japan that let this kind of go as far as it did. Mm. In what ways are our branches going to like turn towards the new sunlight? This three-year period of like the year before Japan, the year in Japan, the year after Japan. I think really it was like year one was just sowing a bunch of seeds, thinking about things. Like we had to know what were the bets we wanted to place on our own lives in order to make such a drastic jump. Then in Japan was like watching these things flower. And then the year back is going to be like the harvest. Like which things survive the cold, survive all these things and become true, like full on, like they're just part of us from now on. And You're making America sound real unappealing. <laughs> right. It's just the cold, <laughs> barren Siberia. And will all the wonderful fruits of Japan make it back yeah. on? I don't mean it that way. Right. But it is, the U.S. is going to be the return testing ground because it is like, what of these new ideas are going to be reincorporated? So you could easily have said if we'd grown up in Japan that America would have been the place where we tried out all these new things. This has been a very uncritical, chaotic growth phase where any whim that has taken me of like, I want to try on this way of thinking, I've just jumped into it wholeheartedly. And I think coming back to the US is going to be more of a, let's see what of that really stuck and what once I tried it on did not fit. So I would not be surprised if a lot of our friends who we've kept in touch with over the phone while we were here are like, one, expecting super crazy people to come back, but then two, will be super surprised at the things we pick back up that we were talking about, like, I'll never do this again, right? Because we had to think that way while we were here of like, everything is new again, so that we could just see what was gonna flourish. But then as we come back to the US, I think a lot of stuff is gonna tone back down into a more recognizable version of ourselves, but hopefully with some of these deeper roots taken in. The biggest one for me is I think I'm gonna be way chiller and like way more into just like hobbies and hanging out with people and less into career and work and like doing a great job as a PM. I still want to do a good job at the things I do, but I think I'm less wrapped up in that sort of achievement. Do you have any reactions to your thoughts on storytelling that you mm. were hearing at the end? I was just smiling because I was like, basically, yeah. you were wishing that you were able to write stories right. and people would read them. And that's basically yeah. the stage you're at now. Yeah. So yeah, thought maybe not one, quite about getting as many people as you want right. to read it, but thought well, and so that's an interesting area of potential development. Generally speaking, thought one, I'm very pleased that I feel like I achieved that. At this point, I have for anyone who's not following along with my stories and whatnot, I've basically written a manuscript for a first book. So I have I've written stories and I've learned to do that and I have become the person I said I wanted to be, which is someone who's able to tell stories, not someone who's learning about telling stories. Who knows if my stories are good, but I enjoy them. People who read them they're say they're to say they're interesting. So I think that mission accomplished. I think previously I was really indexed on 
the impact the story could have, right? Like you notice in the time capsule, I say like, I'm excited to have people reading my stories mm. and like to know, to be getting that feedback. They're reading my stories and finding them really engaging. Mm-hmm. And I think now I have found I really intrinsically like writing. I've created this world that I play some D&D campaigns with friends in and just on weekends I sit down and I build out a new city or a new historical event. I have like maybe 10 people, maybe, who read my stories reliably. And I would have thought that's very demotivating to not have many people reading. But in actuality, I finish a story and I'm just happy I wrote the story. I am just like intrigued with where the story went. And so I think I kind of came to this realization of like, oh, it might be nice if there's no pressure on my writing and that it's fine if my writing never has more than like 10 people reading it because it can be something for myself. I don't care so much about the thing I love being the thing that's my job. And I don't care so much about having to like achieve big results and sort of climb a career ladder. And I also, I want to make a point here because I think it's something a lot of people don't do when they talk about their passions and it creates FOMO. Every morning I wake up and I'm kind of like, oh, like work, I got to go write, you know? And once I start writing, I get into it and I like it. I still feel lots of like, oh, I could just be reading or hanging out or going to the gym. So I'm not consumed by it infinitely. It's just, it's a really nice, pleasant piece that fits into my life. And sometimes it's work and sometimes... I just get absorbed with it. And sometimes I'm just kind of like, yeah, that was nice. I enjoyed writing. But it's all in all, it adds up to a really great experience in my life and a really great addition and something that I do want to like center my life on. But nowadays, I'm not set on like centering it, my career around it. Like we talked about having multiple locusts in your personality. Locusts? Like center points. Locusts? Loci. Loci. I don't know. Locusts. Locusts. Like locusts. Loci. Lo- it just sounded like you were saying lo- locusts. Yeah, I just want to have <laughs> bugs in me. Just these like consuming like plague of bugs just eating me from the inside. No. Um, you say in your time capsule that you want to make sure you actually get fluent in a language. And I can say pretty confidently that neither of us did. Mm-hmm. So I'm just curious how you think about it. And yeah. I mean, how you reflect on not only your language learning journey, but also in contrast to what I did mm. and what you think about it. I decided that learning Japanese wait, was... Wait, wait, wait. Back up a little bit. Just mm. so you set the initial state, right? So we'd been learning Japanese for six months or so online. Yeah. You on and off longer than right. I have. I've been an on and off Japanese language learner for quite some time. About six to eight months before we moved here, we got very intense about learning Japanese. And I was studying like at least an hour every day. And then when we got here, I was doing something similar, like a couple hours a day trying to get really good at Japanese. Right. And you had what? For a while, you were doing one hour lessons every day with a tutor. And then, like you were saying, after three months, kind of decided to stop well, I, that. I didn't get this hit. Oh, in the rough, sorry. Well, I was going to contrast right. what I did. So yeah. I, I was, until very recently, in Japan on a student visa, which means I was required to go to school or I would be deported. So for me, I was doing three and a half hours every afternoon October to December, and then January to March, and then April to about beginning of June-ish yeah, is when I quit. With two breaks in between. Yeah, and so we had spring break and summer vacation. It was right. very weird to be yeah. back in a school system. Each semester was, like I said, two months, and then beginner level was two semesters, and then I got through the first half of intermediate level. Right. So the reason about three months in that I stopped, basically entirely stopped learning Japanese, was it was taking a huge chunk of time and I was finding it hard to 
focus on this new writing thing that I was doing and be going out and seeing Japan, combined with the fact that the language learning, I was putting in several hours a day, which I think is for rapid progress is necessary, but I was still getting slow progress. And so I decided it just wasn't worth the trade-off. And I was like, we're only going to be here for a year or two years. Like we should just enjoy it with the language we can. And I think it is true that we had enough survival Japanese that we could, I mean, we could even have very simple conversations with other dog owners while we're walking our dogs or in a cab and stuff. We can pretty much make it through all our interactions in Japanese. Yeah, we had a very hilarious interaction because we went to Korea for a weekend with my family and we were taking a cab from the airport and it was supposed to be an international cab where they spoke English, aka he had very little English, but it turns out he studied in Japan. And so we actually had a very long conversation with this guy in Japanese in Korea Mm -hmm. and then wasn't probably wasn't our best conversation because it was 1 a.m. because we had a red-eye flight yeah. and he wanted to talk to us and I right. was like I want to go to my hotel and go to sleep but that was a that was a pretty funny right. moment. I spent ostensibly eight months learning right mm-hmm. and I got good. I probably had more even coverage than you did because I went yeah. to a more structured school like I knew maybe a few more grammar points but we were actually pretty close for the first six months in our ability yeah. to communicate far closer than I was comfortable with. I'm like, I was like, I'm spending five hours every day, not discounting what you did, but like twice as long when we were in Japan, I should be so much better, right? You would think it's like a linear graph where Drew is at 10% and I'm at 20% or whatever the percentage is. This was definitely something, the dip or the diminishing returns or step function, like you were saying it. I think you need to put a lot of time into Japanese to make rapid progress. But then there's also this massive gulf where you just notice no appreciable difference in your skill. And then suddenly it jumps. And so this was kind of the calculus that I did was I was in that phase. I'd been studying Japanese a little longer than Vivian. So when we got here, I was a little better. I was in that phase. And I was like, I am putting in three hours a day and seeing no difference. And that's probably just going to be true for like the next six months. And we're only going to be here for a year anyways. I just want to enjoy the cost benefit, it just ended up not feeling worth it. Japanese is so much harder than I expected it to be to learn. Like, I think you hear all these stories of people retiring and picking up French or taking night classes to learn German or something like that. Those languages are close enough to English. I think that like, that truly is possible. I think it is really the case that you cannot learn Japanese truly, like fluently, unless you are willing to just dedicate yourself to it. And Vivian, obviously she kind of had to soldier on. And there did come a point about a month or two ago where suddenly Vivian and I both were kind of like, huh, you are way better at Japanese than I am. And it's clear, like she handles all the conversations now because she's just clearly more conversational about it. I have gotten better, right? Like I've gotten just sort of casual conversation just through general immersion. I have sort of picked up a bit, but Vivian did achieve that first step function. Yeah, and I was going to say, I think part of that is like, When I started intermediate level, in a lot of ways, it got easier because there was less things I was learning every day. But the things that you're learning contribute that extra percentage to make you unlock much more of the language. And and the big thing was um, there is a type of extremely formal language that service people use. And we started learning how to understand the grammar behind that. And you have to learn all the normal grammar first, obviously, before you can even start understanding that. And so then suddenly all these interactions with service people, which we do a lot when we're traveling, I was like, oh, I I can understand this. It is not this 
weird you kind of guess what they're saying because all the verbs are different there's different nouns that they use when you're saying how many people are going to be sitting down in the restaurant you mm-hmm. say sanin which is three people the counter is nin right but if you are the service person responding you say san mei and mei is like a very formal way to say people it's a very honorable way to say people and so if you're just walking around trying to get a seat in a restaurant and you hear that you're like wait they said something different what is going on and so there's all these inefficiencies that i started learning formally now i can see this pattern that before was just completely obscured and you just you just needed all this extra crap to get to that point i do still want to learn japanese and the reason that i still want to learn it is because both of us agree we want to come back. We don't want this to sort of be the end of our long-term experience with Japan. And not just like, oh, we want to come back for a trip every now and then. It's like we want to spend some time living in Japan again in the future. And so I would like to, under less of a time crunch, continue preparing so that we can like meet people when we come back. Because if we ever said to like retire here or stay here for like two or three years, I would want to have solid enough Japanese that we could make friends. And the plan I've done, and this is sort of like for anyone who wants to learn Japanese, my suggestion is don't try to do it all at once because I think that is just overwhelming. There's so much that's so different. So my plan when we go back is I'm just going to learn vocabulary, just the kanji and the pronunciation and sort of like the the vocab without any grammar. The nice thing is Japanese has this set of 2,000 characters. Those characters comprise 4,000 words or something like that, that is the base amount to be considered literate. My goal is to learn all those characters, learn all that vocab, so that then we can focus on the grammar. So I'm gonna just split it into more manageable chunks. Before I was like, I've gotta do it all because I gotta finish it in like a year or something. Uh, And so I'm gonna try that. I still wanna learn because I still think it would unlock a lot of valuable skills. But just during our time here in Japan, I realized focusing on the language now is not the right time for it. Having the freedom to go explore Japan has been really valuable. So I'm like super glad we made a couple strategic decisions to get rid of some big time commitments that then allowed us to really engage with Japan. I think the thing I'm most proud of is that when we leave, I'm not going to feel like, oh, if only we'd done this or I wish we hadn't delayed on doing that. I feel like we really engaged with everything we wanted to engage with. And I'm very happy about that. Do you feel like you are, because you said in the time capsule, you're like, I've never really been fluent in a language and I want to have that. I mean, do you think you have that to some degree? Like you've achieved a little bit of that desire? I certainly think I've achieved a little bit of that. I am pretty comfortable with just some super casual, basic chit chat. And it's not just that, ooh, I can stumble through it. I'm comfortable. I can throw out some Japanese that I've like constructed in my head on the fly. So I do think I've gotten a little bit of that, but I still think the the white whale of actually being able to talk in another language mm. still eludes me, and I do still wish I could get it someday. Should we try doing like an intro or an outro in Japanese no. right now? One, Why no, not? One, no one can understand it. <laughs> Two, we probably aren't good enough to do it that. It would prove our language ability. It could be like a... But my, my language ability is very much just, I've learned enough of the set phrases and patterns and whatnot that mm. I can construct the repetitive small talk right so it'd be like oh nihongo wa jōzu desu ne and i'm like ah mada mada like oh like that means like oh i'm like still working on it things like that or like oh ie ie no one could see this but i did a very common japanese hand gestures that did that that looks more fluent than just saying 
oh, thanks. Or like, oh, I'm well, so, so I do feel like we've unlocked a level, though. Uh, we were teaching some of my college roommates some Japanese. And there's this funny phenomenon that happens. You express that you are not good at Japanese in Japanese. The problem is they can't tell if you're actually bad or you're being modest. Right. Because you're supposed to be modest about how mm-hmm. good your Japanese is. And so there's many funny situations where they're like, oh, I can't speak Japanese. And then the Japanese person just like says a string of words because yeah. they get it really excited. They're right. like, oh, this person does speak. Blah, yeah. blah, blah, blah. Because if you pronounce it really fluently. They're like, well, if they got that so right, this has to be modesty. Right. So they go on. But if you say it like super bad, they're like, oh, this person barely knows Japanese. Yeah. Uh, but so, so yeah. the reason I said we unlocked that level is I actually feel like we're good enough where we can say, oh, we don't really speak. And then when they like say a bunch of stuff, we can actually have a conversation. So we've achieved right. the modesty level. Yeah. It is a little bit of modesty. Bad at Japanese. But, but I think we are still, there will be moments we hit something someone says it and we're like mm, sumasen, wakarimasen, which just means like sorry i didn't get that like i don't know what you're saying i do think though we've we've reached a point where i think vivian and i can have a little bit of japanglish we will just drop we, we've started using some japanese words in place of the english words mm. in areas where like the japanese word is maybe more efficient things yeah. like that so i do think you we, get kind of annoyed at me when i respond in Japanese because you're just like why are you making things more difficult well, some, sometimes Vivian like just wants to have a mini Japanese conversation and that's annoying but why just using vocab, yeah this is this is my life now. No, uh, <laughs> but I think generally speaking it is kind of fun to like drop in things here and there so I do think we've picked up some I think the one achievement unlocked as well just like socially with Japanese is we've befriended uh the Tsuta Michelin ramen people well so I don't know if it's a good or bad thing, but basically we've been so many times with our friends and I think we have weird haircuts and we look distinctive enough that they recognize us. They're like, oh, these guys again. We're Instagram friends with one of them. Yeah. And so one of their, it's a great story, I think. So basically we've been going over the last three years. Drew, you said you've been 10 times? 10 or 11 times. Many times. And just so people who who don't know, when we say, oh, Michelin star ramen, it's like 10 or $15, so it's not like we're, I've been 11 times to a multi-hundred dollar yeah, meal. Yeah, it's, it's still ramen. Um, it's very tasty. Highly recommend. We bring all our friends there. That's why we've been so many times. So this guy who works there, he originally started as a door person. I don't know how to describe it. Basically, he would help arrange the line and make sure people got in and ordered and just like make the whole experience more efficient. And so in traditional Japanese apprenticeship chef uh culture you basically have to do the shittiest jobs until you get promoted to a less shitty job and then eventually you become sous chef and because suta is so small there's only three jobs there's the head chef the guy who owns the place there's a sous chef and then there's the door guy so we've been there long enough that we've seen the door guy get promoted to sous chef he's the one that recognizes us and so we you know had a nice chat with him and then we friended him on Instagram and then we learned that he's opening his own restaurant in Hokkaido and we love Hokkaido so we got really excited and I think he was just super tickled that we were so into his restaurant that doesn't even exist yet we're like where is it what is it gonna be called how are we gonna find out about it all this stuff he was caught off guard when we asked him like oh what's it called so we can find you when we come to Hokkaido and he's like I don't have a name for it yet. I don't know anything. Like, yeah, why are you guys he, so into this? He's not leaving his job until December. And then he's going to go. So he is from Hakodate, which is also one of our favorite cities. So he was also shocked that we like knew where that was. And he's going to go back to his hometown and then start scouting locations and then eventually build uh, his restaurant. 
I was pretty excited. These people know who we are. That's pretty cool. It's very fun, and I feel like now we're part of the foodie world, even though it's, it's like just a <laughs> ramen. Just, it's, first yeah. of all, not even the main right. guy. But it's you know, like the second guy. You know those fancy people who are like, oh, I have a friend who's like a famous chef, and you're yeah, like, yeah, God, yeah. I'm just so jealous of you. Now I can be like, oh, I'm friends with a Michelin star ramen chef. Mm. It feels very, very posh. Overall, I think my one-year retrospective, the things that stand out to me the most are just... This is going to go down, I think, as one of the, if not the best year of my life. I'm just so... It's all downhill from here. Yeah, Joe. just a slow march into the grave. Uh, that should be the title of this episode. A slow the march. slow march that into is the good, grave. I like that. Um, <laughs> it's just been so much fun. And there are so many things I couldn't have anticipated. And there's so many risks. And like we've had so many people who came to us and are like, oh, you're so brave. Like This is such a sacrifice in your career. And you've like, I can't... Like I wish I could have the courage to do it too. And... Other people were just like, oh, are you worried that like your career is going to suffer or all this stuff? And I've just been, I'm really proud that we, one, knew ourselves well enough to know how much we were going to enjoy this. And then also were willing to take the risk on coming. I'm very excited for the next phase, like seeing how all of this sort of folds back into life back in San Francisco. It's resounding success. I've been super yeah. pleased with the time. Next level. That's it for this week. Thanks for listening. And special thanks to Pastrew for agreeing to record a time capsule even though I was making him late for his flight. The Terrace House opening theme music was Ready For It by Taylor Swift for the Japanese release and Trying by Eleventy Seven for the international release. The show's website is sanfrancokiopodcast.com. See you next time.